0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit Ellerslie.com. D Day, June 6th, 1944, has always been my quintessential picture of the day of testing, the day of proving the man. There isn't a one of us that wants to have an empty lamp when the bridegroom comes, and there isn't one of us that wants to be ill prepared for a D Day in our own lives. Hey, this is Eric. Before we jump into this message and explore what it takes to ready a man for battle, I wanted to mention that we have a couple spots left in our fall five-week training starting in five days on September 5th on the Ellerslie campus. I highly recommend this training for anyone that is hungry to live out vigorous Christianity with boldness and purpose. Visit ellerslie.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now let's visit the Moray Firth in Scotland in the spring of 1944 and join the troops training in the bitter cold as they prepare to throw themselves into one of the most difficult, most important, and most defining battles in all human history. I was uh, so excited to uh, continue forward with my uh, World War II series, and I, I, I had remembered after I prepared all these different messages for last week that uh, we had a special week because we had students in town, and it did prove to be a very, very special week with all the guest uh, Daily Thunders, uh, but my, my World War II passions were uh, kept at bay for uh, a week, and uh, this is going to be a very, very unique week. We are... In so many ways, and I I see the uh, even the time in history that we are studying in World War II right now, which is approaching D Day. I see this uh, the same thing happening sort of in our ministry, if I could say it that way, that God is uh, bringing us to a place of readiness to fight and to win a key battle. And when we think of D Day, we oftentimes think of the disasters that are taking place, the, the death and the the horrible circumstances that these men were placed in, but what we should remember is the victory. <laughs> I mean, there's, I, you know, it, it's important to remember the sacrifice, but to not forget what that sacrifice has gained. And that's the same with the cross. Boy, if all you focused on was the blood and the injustice, it would be a really depressing scene, but there is something that is being worked out of that loving sacrifice, which is worth meditating upon for all eternity, and that is, he won. He finished the work. He did it, and that's a D Day. Uh, and so, you know, in history past, there is a D Day, and it is the D Day of all history. It literally divides history, and uh, well, I guess his birth divides history, but close, right? Thirty-three years off. It is. It is the key life that is going to separate uh, the BC from the AD. Uh, rehearsing D Day. This is part sixty-four, and. Here we are approaching what the Allies have been building up for years. And so once Pearl Harbor is bombed and America, which is December 7th, 1941, you're going to see this movement of preparation that Great Britain and America are going to begin to move towards, and that is, how do we stop Hitler? And it's interesting because it wasn't Hitler that bombed Pearl Harbor. And yet the Americans are going to recognize the great threat in this battle is not Emperor Hirohito. And I'm not downplaying the Japanese because they are a powerful, powerful force. But the reason the Japanese have confidence to even make this attack and make this war against America is because of Hitler. Hitler is giving other evil powers confidence. And I want you just to sort of land that sub-truth right there that when you don't stop the main guy it has a tendency to empower others and that's what we're seeing even in our culture right now you're seeing lower level evil powers that are actually starting to get a little bravado to them and start strutting around the streets of our culture and you'll notice that it becomes paralyzing for the good guys to know what to do how do you stop this what do you say in response And this is why it's so critical that there is a counter, that there is a response to this. It is obvious to everyone in the world that Hitler needs to be confronted. He has basically just stolen territory all throughout uh, Europe, and there has hardly been a peep in response. I mean, we have skirmishes all around, but Europe itself, other than the, uh, the attacks in Italy, uh, you know, in North Africa, and then Italy, and trying to cr- crawl up the boot uh, in 19, uh, earlier 1944, but Europe sort of just is staring back at the world, and it's, it's covered with Hitler. And so if you look at the map in this time, even though the allies are actually a greater power right now, It's almost like if you were a betting person, you would say, well, I'm going to have to lean with the Allies, but the Allies haven't taken any territory. Hitler is still boasting a a great strength. Right from uh, 1941, Stalin in Soviet Russia is saying, we need a second front. Great Britain, Churchill, you need to cross the English Channel and you need to hit in France. And that will distract the troops from them hitting us in Russia. And it makes total sense. However, As Churchill tried so many times over to communicate with Stalin, it isn't that easy to cross the English Channel with hundreds of thousands of men and all the materials needed for war and just attack a fortified countryside. That isn't just how it works. It's called an amphibious attack, which means from water to land, sort of like a a tadpole to a frog. And it's very difficult. Stalin doesn't know anything about amphibious warfare and Churchill does. And he's like, this is a very, very complex uh, preparation. And it is. It's going to take years for them to develop, and that's alongside of the Americans. So this is a huge venture. In fact, you could almost say most of World War II is the preparations for D-Day. All the other battles around are to sort of niggle away and to uh, reroute troops and they're actually trying to get as many troops of hitlers of the germans away from the beaches of normandy as they can And right before D-Day, they're actually going to bomb bridges and railways, uh, and they're going to decimate France, which, you know, if you were French, you probably wouldn't appreciate that too much. Thank you, allies, for destroying (laughs) all of our communication systems, all of our transportation systems. But the reason they're going to do that is they've tried to isolate out as many of Hitler's troops elsewhere so that when they hit on the beaches of Normandy, Hitler's troops can't return. I mean, it's, it's really well thought through. If you go into the depths of this, it is quite interesting to just see how the military minds work. Here's what's interesting. This is what stands out to me. Satan is a military mind and he has resources. He understands battle. He's been dealing with it for ages and generations. God is a military man. However, the church rarely, if ever, understands how these things work. And and I, I get it at a certain level. It's like Satan's been around a long time. God's been around a long time. All the angels, all the demons, they've been around a long time. They know these things. We pop out of the womb, and suddenly we're in a battle. We don't have a lot of history to draw from, which is why we must draw from the history that exists, and God supplies it to us so that we can grow up and we can learn, And that's one of the reasons I think this is so critical that we actually remember our history because so much of it is just repeated because we don't know it. And we step in the same mousetrap, maybe I should say like bear trap, uh, that the previous generations did. The enemy sets it out. He's like, yeah, they have no clue what they're doing. And and you can even hear the demons. It's like, you're using the same trick over and over again. He's like, I know. Uh, He's not a creative being. He uses the same things over and over again, and it's really... Horrifying to think that they work <laughs> on us. And that's why it's critical that we remember and that we understand how these things work. So I went through this however long ago it was when I did, gave my last session, which was the H hour, which is dealing with uh, many of us know the D day. We understand D day. Now we don't realize that D day is just a military term, it's like the day of days. So D means day. And so D-Day means day-day, uh, and H-hour means hour-hour. But it's the hour of hours. It's like Lord of Lords, King of Kings. It's like there's a lot of kings, but there's one King of Kings. There's a lot of lords, but there's one Lord of Lords. There's a lot of days, but there is only one D-Day. There is a lot of hours, but there's only one H-hour. And you can do that with minutes. You could do that with seconds, because that's actually what it's going to bake down to. It's going, there's going to be an S-second in this, where it's like, go! And you are going to ch- see history being made. This is a massive engagement. <clears throat> so, to get down to that H hour, there is a process, and I rehearsed this uh, last time, uh, however long ago that was, that I gave the message H hour. But first of all, you have to define the primary enemy, and that's that might sound a little easier to us than it was to them because there are three world powers that are engaged in this axis. And so you have Italy and Benito Mussolini, you have Emperor Hirohito in the Japanese, and you have Adolf Hitler and the Germans. And so for, even for Roosevelt, Roosevelt is staring at the Japanese in his backyard. That's the way it feels. They're, they're, they're controlling the Pacific, and that means Hawaii is vulnerable and the West Coast of America are vulnerable. And the West Coast of America is not set up to defend itself with fortifications. It just wasn't expecting this. It's not built for war. Now, there are a lot of people in America that carried guns at that time, and so, you know, uh, I don't know what the Japanese would have run into (laughs) if they had actually engaged the shoreline of America. That would have been, I'm glad we never had to find out. Let me just put it that way, but it would have been interesting. Uh, So they needed to find the primary enemy, and that's going to be Hitler. You take down Hitler, Mussolini and Hirohito follow. And that was actually, this is how World War II is going to play out. They were correct in this. Define the primary target. The primary target is going to be Europe, Germany, Berlin. I mean, if you really want to get down to it, you need to go to the capital of Hitler. You need to get to the the core of this, and that's going to create a ripple effect, a domino effect, and Japan will follow. And that's exactly what you're going to see happen. Berlin is taken before uh, Japan is bombed and you're going to see the uh, the rest of the World War unfold accordingly. However, you can't just take Berlin. To take Berlin, you need to be able to cross the channel. You need to control the Mediterranean. To control the Mediterranean and the English Channel, you have to control the Atlantic. And so actually the key battles that are leading up are going to be the chief battle and the chief focus is going to become the Atlantic Ocean, which for most of us, we don't even think about, right? But their U-boats of the Germans, which are submarines in our translation, are controlling the Atlantic and it's creating huge havoc. And so they can't cross the English Channel and make it because the U-boats would you know, create havoc for them. They can't control the Mediterranean as long as they don't control the Atlantic. And so that becomes, when it says define the pre-battles, that's one of the key pre-battles. They had to take northern Africa. They had to take the Mediterranean. They had to take the Atlantic and ultimately control the English Channel uh, undisputed. Then they had to define the invasion point. And they knew it needed to be France and northern France because of the strategic location of it. And there's various beaches and shorelines in France. Pas-de-Calais was the obvious one. And even Hitler is going to mount all of his fortifications. Not all, but most of his fortifications on Pas-de-Calais. And it's the shortest distance across the channel. So it's going to be the safest. You're going to have the highest percentage of success there. The beaches are laid out for hundreds of thousands to be able to land. I mean, this is like a dream. And yet it's also the place that Hitler's expecting. And there's this other place called Normandy. The Normandy beaches, which are going to be hard. That would be really difficult. It's a lot further, a lot more dangerous but Hitler's not expecting that. And so Normandy, the Normandy beaches are going to be chosen. So the invasion point is chosen. Then they need to find the commanding officer. So originally it's a British man named General Brooke. And then Churchill's going to feel oppressing, like because of the involvement in the United States, that he really needs to give this to the Supreme Command position to a U.S. general. And originally, that's going to be Marshall, and then it's going to become Eisenhower. And so you're going to see this, because whoever the general is, is going to define all the rest of the stuff. That's, this is the general's business from here on out. So that becomes critical. Define the commanding officer, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Define the invasion tactic. Well, there's a whole bunch of things we could go into with how they're going to define, you know, how the amphibious landing is going to work, even what craft they're going to take over, how much of it, when they're going to launch it, Uh, the fact that they're going to send in paratroopers that are going to land behind enemy lines, I mean, precisely at the same time. Could you imagine being one of those guys, You landing in the German territory? uh, It's just like, hey, we're here. (laughs) And there's no way out. I mean, really, this is like crazy. And they even knew that 80% of them were likely going to die. I mean, could you imagine just sending those guys in? These are your elite and they're just sending them in to die. I mean, it's extraordinary, but that was part of the invasion tactic and uh, like to destroy the bridges and the railroads, invasion tactic. That's all part of the general's mind. And then define the day. So uh, they originally wanted it in May, but they needed more landing craft. So Dwight Eisenhower is going to push it out in March. He's going to push it out to June. And there's three days where the moon period is going to be just perfect, which would cause the tides to be just right, everything, and it's uh, June 5th, 6th, and 7th are the window of time. So, of course, they're going with June 5th. I mean, we're going with June 5th, guys. And so, June 5th, oh, there's a storm, and it's like a winter storm in June. A Winter storm in June, how could that happen? And so, it's going to end up being, and that's my next session, is going to uh, I'm not going to give anything away from it. Spoiler, uh, no, no, I don't like giving away spoilers. But uh, June 6, 1944 is D-Day, and uh, so then you have the hour, which is very specifically picked, a very specific amount of hours after you know uh, daylight. You know everything about this is down to the minute and the second. D-Day and H-hour. So now we know the day, and we know the day in advance, and so if your general knows the day in advance, he is going to prepare for that day. I mean, this just makes sense, right? Why would you start preparing after D-Day for D-Day? You prepare before D-Day for D-Day. Now, this is why I'm bringing it up, because World War II makes no difference to any of us if we don't glean from it. There is a day of preparation that God is building us for, and there is a need and there's a reason why even very stories are given, even by Christ in scripture, is to say, look, I have supplied you with what you need. Now you need to exercise your faith. You need to do what I've asked you to do so that when I come, you will be ready. Okay, now that stirs up quite a few things within us that we remember in scripture. But the question is, are we rehearsing D-Day? Are we preparing for engagement? This is such an extreme engagement that they're about to run into, and they know it. And the troops really don't know all the details. They don't know the day or the hour. They don't know all the invasion points. If they did, they could leak it, right? So most of this is kept from them as it is kept from us. We don't know exactly what is coming, but we know with all the training that's going on, we're starting to put some pieces together. I think this is going to be a beach landing that is an amphibious landing, okay? Why would you come to that conclusion as a soldier? Because we're practicing amphibious landings onto beaches (laughs) in England, okay? So I'm guessing, I'm hazarding guesses that God is preparing us for an amphibious landing. This is the same way we are. Like right now, as we go through this season, you get this idea that God is preparing us for something. That as the church, he's readying us for a D-Day and an H-hour. Okay, God, I want to be ready for it. So you don't want to be the recalcitrant soldier that's like, you know what, Uh, I'm out of here. I'm not about to do this. You you want to be well-trained for this so that in the day you stand and you stand firm. So rehearsing the landing, isn't that just an interesting terminology? Because that's what Churchill's going to use, that we are rehearsing It's fascinating because as Christians, I don't think we use the idea of rehearsing, that we have a dress rehearsal for suffering. (laughs) We, We don't think that way. So most of us come into suffering without mental preparation, without spiritual preparation, without practical preparations. And so this is a delicate message. I'm just going to acknowledge that up front, because part of it needs to be led of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a form we have like preparation school for suffering. And we all come together. It's like, okay, guys. Now, maybe we should. I I, I don't want to rule it out. However, that's not how we typically think, right? And so what I don't want to do is burden anyone's conscience with the wrong sorts of requirements in, in preparation. But I want to burden the conscience with the right sort. And so we see, like, for instance, in the Ten Virgins, we see that they had lamps and they needed to have oil in them. Okay, so we can press that. That's the right sort of burden. A lot of times there are specific practicals that we need to exercise in our life that are unique to us. Like some people have slept on hard floors to prepare for more difficulty. Well, it becomes very awkward when I prescribe that as the thing that all of you need to do. Do you understand why? Because then it can very quickly become an external form of righteousness that if we do it, will please God. It's like, no, 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 no. This has nothing to do with us pleasing God. This This has to do with us preparing as soldiers. We already are pleasing God. We're in Christ by faith. We are resting in that position. However, now there's an exercise and a preparedness for some real engagement so that we can walk through it shining lights, the light of Christ. So Winston Churchill says once the size of the expedition had been determined, it was possible to go ahead with intensive training. I think we call Ellerslie's training intensive training, don't we? So we're sort of similar to this, right? Not the least of our difficulties was to find enough room. Now remember, Great Britain isn't that big of an island, right? And they are going to have hundreds of thousands of soldiers from America and from all the uh, colonies and the Commonwealth of England and Great Britain that are going to make their way into this little island, preparing to cross the channel and to attack. Imagine trying to do that secretly, uh, that, this is quite something. A broad partition was arranged between British and American forces whereby the British occupied the southeastern and the Americans the southwestern parts of England. The inhabitants of coastal areas accepted all the inconveniences in good part. One British division with its naval counterpart did all its earlier training in the Moray Firth area in Scotland. The winter storms prepared them for the rough and tumble of D-Day. The weather in, at, at, on D-Day, June 6th, is actually really bad. And uh, that's spoiler alert. Oh, I want to I, oh, I say it, but I'm going to restrain myself, guys. I'm going to restrain myself. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. All right, Winston Churchill continues, the theory and practice of amphibious operations had long been established. It had now to be taught to all concerned. I really like that statement because what we are engaged in has long been established. The theory of Christian suffering, the theory of uh, enduring persecution, the theory of readying for persecution. Amphibious, this is an amphibious operation. Going from water to beach, getting tanks literally onto the land. How do you get the first line that is going to attack? And usually if you're the first line, I mean, you're going to be Mowed down, and so how do you prepare your soldiers? Even the guy that needs to open the door. Uh, I was studying a a story this last uh, week of a man. I mean, I was so moved by this man, who's an older. uh, He's probably not even around anymore. But his job was to open the door uh, to the transport vehicle, and so he had all of his buddies that were standing there and on the outside of the doors, ding, 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 just being hit with machine gun fire. And and the guy goes, open the door, you know, whatever his name is, you know, Carlton. And he couldn't do it. He was paralyzed because he knows the moment he drops it, all his friends are dying. Open the door. I'm sure there was some cursing thrown in there too. (laughs) He opens the door and literally he he still lives with it, that he was the one that opened the door and the first five rows of men are just shot down. And to go through this, how do you prepare anyone To go into that, even to open the door, how do you prepare the body of Christ to endure difficulties? I've always used, if you were to follow me around all these years, I've always used Omaha Beach as my symbol of what we are being prepared for. So D-Day, but very specifically Omaha Beach. Omaha Beach was the hardest of all the beaches out of the five. The theory and practice of amphibious operations had long been established. It had now to be taught to all concerned. Lessons from previous large-scale exercises and of course from our hard experience were applied in final rehearsals by all three services which culminated in May 1944. That was Winston Churchill. Now Winston Churchill again. All southern England thus became a vast military camp filled with men trained, instructed and eager to come to grips with the Germans across the water. So, if you'd studied World War II, you would find that statement quite ironic because in the 1930s, Great Britain was anything but a military camp teeming with enthusiasm to go across the channel and to fight the Germans. This is an exact flip-flop from where they were at. And so even though it comes onto the onto the screen very easily and it reads very easily this is supernatural in a lot of regards you see the church of jesus christ it would be really good if such a statement could be enunciated and verbalized to explain us listen to this again all southern england thus became a vast military camp filled with men trained instructed and eager to come to grips with the germans across the water you see for us our desire isn't to kill germans that that's not our desire our desire is to reach lost souls. And are we trained for it? Do we recognize that to go into this engagement could cost us our life in the upcoming years? There's certain places on earth that if you do it right now, you could lose your life. But in America, we don't have that as a threat. It's not a real threat. However, in the upcoming years, it very well could be. Could you imagine having this, that they were eager to come to grips with the lost souls in their country? Now, that's that's something that I want to see stirred within us, where the entire church becomes a vast military camp filled with men and women trained and instructed and eager. Okay, now that's, that's a pretty cool description. So the contrast between 1939 Great Britain and 1944 Great Britain. 1939 Peace, peace at all costs. We don't want to have war. Despise war, spit on war. Anyone who talks about war is a warmonger, a hate monger. And then you have 1944 where everyone knows this is war. In fact, sign me up. It's the exact opposite. Everyone wants to be a part of it. So you have all these young boys that are trying to, you know, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a 17. I don't remember what the age cutoff was. It was somewhere around there. And, you know, they're trying to act like they're old enough so that they can go participate. Who in their right mind wants to sign up for a world war? Well, you have a country here that is thinking very differently than we do here in America. Right now in America, we're back in 1939, and we're like, I don't want any difficulty. I don't want any challenge. And so whatever I can do to just be at peace, 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 peace with everything around me, instead of recognizing we are the harbinger's Of world change. We are the ones that carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what is trying to be snuffed out right now. You don't think that all these movements, these riots are actually just neutered, that they don't have an agenda. Their agenda is anti-Christ. Decidedly so. This movement that we sense is decidedly anti-Christian. And so as a result, the more we pick up on that, the more we recognize, you know what? I think it could be good to ready myself for an engagement. That doesn't mean that we get out a machine gun and we learn to, you know, practice our target shooting with it. We get out the tools of our spiritual life so that we know how to engage this oncoming darkness with the tools of heaven. Love is actually our chief tool. Forgiveness, patience, kindness, generosity, the very things that fly in the face of all this are, the way we counter these things, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. We need to start exercising our weapons. The theory and the practice of how to do these things is well established throughout Christian history. The problem is we as North American Christians are unfamiliar with the difficulty that requires such a bazooka to be used. Oh, I've never used artillery before. Why would I need to use it? Because, I mean, we we use feather dusters where I come from. We're not used to using the big guns of the kingdom of heaven to actually accomplish the big ends of the kingdom of heaven. And as a result, we find ourselves ill-prepared. We find ourselves in a 1939 circumstance where the enemy is making his move, but we've been clamoring for peace, peace, peace for so long, we don't know how to engage the enemy. Amos 4.12, this is this is a really fun scripture just to sort of throw out there because it, it sounds like something from a movie. It really does. Prepare to meet thy God. And then I have to add, O Israel, because it's in the, in the text. But I should have cut out even, O Israel, so I could just prepare to meet thy God. You see, there's this concept of preparation. We're using the word rehearsing for D-Day. But prepare to meet thy God. Isn't that just an incredible uh, idea? Because right here, right now, it never hurts for us to prepare to meet our God. We are always in a preparatory season to be readied to encounter the Eternals. And so that's just, that's just a starter package. If we're ready to meet God, well, we're ready to meet almost anything in between. So the Ten Virgins are a classic illustration in Scripture of readiness, of preparation, that these ten virgins are all given a lamp, and they are, they, they are informed of what that lamp is. They know what it is. However, five of them are slow to fill their lamps with oil because there will be a better day, maybe someday in the future, that they could do that. And five are ready to engage the bridegroom because they have their lamps filled with oil. And for us, I just want to make sure that we have oil in our lamps. Now, if we call that the Holy Spirit, which could rightfully be defined as the Holy Spirit, it would be accurate, but I want to go one step beyond that and say the Holy Spirit's preparatory processes, that He wants to work in us, I would say, I believe, to sanctify us, to ready us for the coming day, whatever that be. And there are small micro-movements that the Holy Spirit works on in our life. And that's sort of what I want to bring up in this message. It's a difficult message to know how to give practicals for because the practicals can also be stumbling blocks. And I don't want to create stumbling blocks. I want to create a vision and allow the Holy Spirit to prepare us the way He needs to uniquely and individually. Isaiah forty verse three: The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord; make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So this is the Old Testament. It's the transition point in uh, the book of Isaiah where it's going to go from the judgments to the uh, the hope and the mercy and the grace. And it's right at the beginning of that. And it's going to be a foreshadow of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going to fulfill this prophecy, and he is going to be a voice crying in the wilderness. And what is he crying? Prepare prepare ye the way. So there's something that needs to be prepared. And all throughout life, there is a preparation, a pre-work that needs to happen so that when something else happens, there is a readiness for it. Proverbs thirty twenty five: the ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. The ant isn't that uh, you know, he's not that strong, well, ironically for his size, he's very strong, but compared to us, he's not, right? And that's, that's similar with us. We're like an ant where we're not that strong compared to our enemy, compared to the devil and compared to the forces coming against us, and yet when we prepare uh, ahead of time, there is something that an ant is able to do that is truly astounding. It makes his way into the Bible because of his preparations, And so there's a lot of reasons the ant makes it into Proverbs, but he's wise. So he is taking that season ahead and he is prepping for what is to come. Rehearsing D-Day. So what does that look like for us? So how do I respond when? Now this is classic Eric Ludi. I don't know if other people go through these types of mental gymnastics. Yet for me, I have a whole list. So I'm going to just walk you through an ever-growing list of intensity. And what I will do is I will actually think through how I, well, I could say how I would respond or how I should respond. Because sometimes walking through the exercise pokes at Eric Ludy, and I, I realize that I feel like a coward and I'm not even in the situation. And that bothers me. It bothers me that I'm, I feel like I'm pulling back. Now, amazing heroics can be done in the moment because of the grace of God that can come upon us. So I'm not going to discount that. However, there's still a readying because there's also great uh, demonstrations of cowardice that can be demonstrated in the moment when, when great intensity comes on. And the fleeing and the retreating, you know, with your tail between your legs is also very common throughout history. And I would prefer the other direction. I would prefer to engage that battle and to not turn my back on it, but to keep pressing and to see the victory. How do I respond when? So let's start with a very simple one. I am treated poorly simply because I'm a Christian. You know that that is so rare in our country to be treated poorly just because you're a Christian, right? And so, we don't really understand that at a great level. We just have small levels. Like, there, there are certain things that are happening where things that we believe are being ridiculed. But it's not personal, it's just things we believe. And so, we, we've, we're used to that. But what is our response when we are treated poorly simply because we're Christians? You should exercise your response to that ahead of time because. It's not to get mad and to just rebuke and correct someone. You're actually supposed to take it a certain way to respond with gentleness, an opposite spirit. So there's tools, there's theories and practices that have been given to the saints throughout the ages and generations that we need to be trained in. What if my liberties are restricted? See, right now we are used to, especially in North America, a certain degree of liberty. Okay, we have a lot of liberty. But over the COVID-19 stretch, those liberties have been reduced quite dramatically, especially for churches, and we almost, almost don't know how to handle it. So you'll see some people that are like, eh. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we just want to, be, you know, Romans 13, just submit to the government. Then you see other people are like, hey, I'm pulling the axe, you know, where it's like, well, you know, it's better to obey God than man. So you, you see these polarizing things, and many churches are struggling with splits over these very issues. In a sense, we haven't rehearsed. We are being caught off guard, and as a result, the enemy's playing us to the point where we are actually fracturing because our liberties are being restricted, and we're not used to that. Oh, how about this one? How do I respond when I'm Spat? on. I don't know if you've ever been spat on, but that's, uh, that would be a unique tension of soul because that is a very disturbing thing to have happen, right? How are you going to respond when you are struck to the face? I, I've been punched in the face once in my life. Most people can't even say that. I've been punched in the face once. Uh, my, my buddy, uh, when we were leaving the reservoir when we were uh, seniors in high school, uh, picked up his uh, towel and sand got all over this tough guy that was there, and he didn't know it. I, of course, had no idea. I had nothing to do with it, and so he he gets his buddies, and they're coming after us. And we're just like leaving, going to the parking lot, and we turn around. He's like, "What are you thinking? What do you think?" Comes up to me and bops me in the nose. <laughs> it happened. So I have been bopped in the nose, and I remember being so stunned. <laughs> I didn't know what to say or do. I hadn't practiced for this one. I didn't pop him back. I had no idea what was even going on. It's like what was that? And so it does startle you and it stuns you, okay? And that's, that's the way many of us are. We're in a frozen state instead of an active state. What if this, my occupation is denied, no longer can you be a part? If you were a Jew in Nazi Germany, you lost your job. Certain jobs were just removed from you because they didn't want Jews in these key positions. What if you just suddenly couldn't do your job? You couldn't even earn a wage. You couldn't bring in money how are you going to respond? What's your soul condition? What does God tell you to do in those moments? Because I don't think it's bemoan, groan, and grumble, curse, get angry, and hate. There's a very different pattern that needs to be cultivated in us. We are rehearsing D-Day. So we need to remember God's responses to these things. Is he caught off guard? Is he panicked? If he is, then we have every reason to panic. But if God, the one who sits in heaven, sits enthroned in heaven, is laughing, then I think we should maintain the same countenance. What if our bank accounts are frozen? Whew, that would be an interesting one. How much cash did you hide under your pillow? Uh, Do you have a gold reserve? I mean, this is like interesting stuff. What if you don't have a gold reserve? Like, I don't have a gold reserve. I don't have cash under my pillow. I don't have a lot of money, right? So as a result, what if my bank accounts are frozen? Oh, no do you trust God? I mean, you can look at the Israelites' bank accounts were frozen. They're no longer slaves. There's no guaranteed food source, and they're in the wilderness. Their bank accounts are frozen. They lost their occupation. They were brickmakers. Oh, no! But they're right where God wants them, and God is going to supernaturally feed a nation with bread from heaven. That's remarkable. They have no shoe store to go to, so their shoes never wear out. That's extraordinary. You see, our God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Do we have the right disposition as we enter into these situations? What if our house is taken from us? Oh, wow. They falsely accuse you of not paying your mortgage, and then suddenly they say, yeah, you're out. You don't have a house. Well, of course, if we're the body of Christ, we move into someone else's house, right? And they're like, oh, great. And then they lose their house. What if we all lose our house? That makes for a unique situation. God is in control in every situation. What if I'm put in prison because I won't recant? What if I'm being brought to my death? Have you ever thought about, have you ever practiced that, where you're being brought to your end and they're they're going to uh, bring about a painful death to you? What's your attitude? What's your countenance? What are people seeing if they're watching you? Are they seeing the glories of Jesus in this? Are they seeing you, no, don't do this to me. I mean, come on fuck up. Let's get this thing together. However, it is a supernatural work. You study Fox's Book of Martyrs and you see these people glowing like heaven. You see them singing songs. You see them shouting praises. It's like, what is that? That's what we want to prepare for. We want to rehearse this. And then how about this? What was our response when we're experiencing pains of torture? It's always been one of my things. I know it's sort of a gruesome thing to stick up on the screen, but How are we responding even to pain? Are we ready to rehearse? You know that there's a way of rehearsing that? Now, you can't rehearse torture, and I don't want to try, okay? I'm not proposing that we do. But do you know that we go through pain all the time? And this is our practice ground, how you handle pain. Yes, torture is just a little bit greater pain, but guess what? The grace is greater for it. Same response. It's the same celebratory mindset of the Christian to say, God, You're going to grow me through this and please minister to them through through me. May I love in this moment. I I refuse to harbor any unforgiveness. I refuse to harbor any resentment. I give love in its place. You are immediately turning outward instead of turning inward. Pain turns most of us inward to think about what we're feeling. Jesus is on the cross and what's he doing? He's thinking about his mom. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's thinking about everyone else. I've always called that the secret of martyrdom. You think about everyone else when you're experiencing pain, and as a result, you're buoyed in the midst of it. Esther On Kim and her preparations. I don't know if you guys ever remember reading her story, but she was uh, South Korean, and uh, the Japanese w- in, were in control, and they were forcing everyone to bow down to the sun god, and she refused. She stood and so she was in hiding and she knew that she was going to be imprisoned and she knew the imprisonment would be rough because she talked to other people that had gone through it so she deliberately prepared to be imprisoned she even felt like god was saying you will be imprisoned so she was preparing and again this is esther on kim this isn't something that you are supposed to do i'm not requiring or you know saying that this is the more spiritual way to live i'm saying she prepared So she would go to the market and she would get the rancid fruit instead of the good fruit so she could train herself to eat food and to be satisfied by food that wasn't usually satisfying. She slept on the floor. Uh, She did something else too. I can't remember what it was. Uh, Oh, she fasted and prayed often. In other words, she would just periodically fast for longer stretches to prepare her body for less. Now, I know, there's nothing exciting about any of the things I'm talking about. This is somewhat of a challenging message just to even hear, let alone to practice and to live out. But what you're going to see is that this woman is going to thrive in and through her difficulties because she was readied for difficulties, You also have Richard Wurmbrandt's preparations. Richard Wurmbrandt is going to thrive. There's a lot of Christians that are going to be thrown into prison during the the Soviet, the communist occupation of Romania that are not going to do what Richard Wurmbrandt is going to do. They're going to falter, they're going to fail, and they're going to turn over their brothers and sisters and and expose them and their whereabouts. And Richard Wurmbrandt is going to just be full of love and joy. He is going to take the chains in his wrists and turn them into instruments to sing songs and praises to God when he's kicked in the, in the ribs and they break his ribs and they say, what are you going to say? And he says, I love you. I mean, what, how, what's that? That's something that has to already be inside. You don't want to try and cram it inside the moment you get into prison. You want to cultivate that and store it up. Now, like the ant preparing, you're preparing this inner man to have love and joy and peace stalked away so that when you are hit out comes the life of Jesus. So here's some small ways. Now again, these are not mandatory requirements as much as ideas that I want you just to continually chew on as you begin to be prepared by the Spirit. Small ways to begin preparing. Fast, specific comforts. Now I'm gonna say for a day. And the reason I'm putting for a day is lest someone in here accuse me of, you know, putting undue weights upon the body of Christ. So just imagine this. Imagine you consider, you prayerfully consider the idea of fasting-specific comforts that you have right now for a day, okay? Now, immediately that makes us a little uncomfortable. It's like, well, I'm sure he doesn't mean this. Uh, Well, I'm not meaning anything. I'm just saying it, right? The Holy Spirit can mean what he would want to mean. And then how about saying no to certain privileges for a day? There's certain things that we have, that we're privileged to right now that in the future, we may not be. And so as a result, learning to say no to it, just like Richard Wurmbrandt's tactic for, going, uh, for preparing for uh, persecution was to walk through a grocery store. And he says, when you come to America, boy, you have, it's even a better training ground because there's so many things that you can say, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. If you're in a Romanian uh, grocery store, it wasn't, you know, there's just a few things. So it's like, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. But he said, one of the best ways is to go into a grocery store and just walk around and say, I don't need that. I don't need that. God is sufficient for me. God is sufficient. God is greater than that for me. And it's an exercise of soul. How about this one? Speak up when you would usually be silent. What about to practice? Even if it's in a small way, usually I would be quiet right now, but I'm going to exercise my boldness. And if you don't ever exercise boldness, what makes you think you're going to be bold when you get into prison? And to share the gospel with those around you. You see, you are, if you are put in prison, it is the ultimate mistake of the enemy. This is the way you have to think of it as a Christian. It's like, oops, oh enemy, you just stuck me in a new mission field. Because now this is the place you're going to shine Jesus. But if you're going to do that in prison, you sort of need to be doing it now. And if you're not shining Jesus in the easier situations now, what makes you think that it's just going to somehow unpack and be profound in the prison? How about this? Go the extra mile in a task. So just take a normal task in your day and do it with super duper uh, energy. Go an extra mile. Do something even beyond what you would normally do. Just practice going beyond to do things with extravagance. Get to bed earlier and get up earlier to pray. see, creating a discipline to your life and an order to your life actually can be very critical For when you're in prison, some of the most successful people in and through difficulty are those that maintain a composure of soul. In other words, they keep exercising, they keep organizing their mind, they keep meditating upon truth the whole time. They discipline their life in prison as opposed to just sort of flopping and having an emotional uh, self-pity party. Instead, they maintain a composure of soul and a discipline of life. It's like, oh, I'm going to still get to bed at the same time. I'm going to get up early, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to mark down my days of how long I've been here. I'm going to rehearse the scriptures I know. I'm going to... Richard Wurmbrand wrote, I don't know how many sermons, in his mind. He had them all in his mind, and he organized them in his mind. And so he had multiple books, basically, already stashed away inside of him because he was constantly meditating. How about this one? Look for opportunities to sacrifice. To actually find opportunities to give up so that others can gain is something that needs to become a deliberate exercise. And this one, give generously to someone in need. So those are simple, guys. They're not that high level. I, I sort of purposely made them at a low entry level uh, perspective so that we don't get intimidated by first steps into this, because this could be a fairly intimidating message. There's a few people that started the message like, yeah, World War II, I love the World War II message, and then they get to this part, and they're like, you know, I don't like this World War II message. <laughs> this is a hard one. It is, but if you were preparing for D-Day, that would be a hard preparation. You want to understand history? You, a lot of us love D-Day. We're thinking, oh, that's so great, but that is one difficult thing to actually personally encounter and to go through. So here's just a summary as we finish. Preparing to go without. Preparing to be comfortable without comforts. Think about that. Preparing to be comfortable without comforts. Why? Because you have a capital C comforter. Preparing to rejoice in prison cells. Preparing to love those that physically harm us. If you're physically harmed, your instinct is to retaliate. It's just a human instinct. It's to give back. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus is going to overwrite that with a higher law. He's going to say, I know that that's how you function. But I want to show you how I function. They harm me, I love back. This is the cross in a nutshell. We're practicing for a cross, guys. Preparing to pray for those that abuse us. Preparing to stay loyal to our brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the number one things the enemy wants is betrayal. And he knows that if he can get you to betray that it actually compromises your soul and can oftentimes shame you into separating from the body of Christ and also lead to uh, a harm and a pain to your brothers and sisters, which then you have to live with. So it basically can destroy your soul. That's what the enemy is using it for. And okay, even if the brothers and sisters forgive you, and they're like, no, I forgive you. It's still a deep pain to recognize that you caused them 11 years in prison because you said their name. And so just to practice being faithful, even unto death. Practice monitoring our tongue and being discreet because we live in a world where actual information can harm people we love. We're not used to that. We're used to total open. I mean, the internet, everything's just known by everyone. And then suddenly, if it goes underground, you don't want everyone to know everything. (laughs) Now, I'm sure that it's not going to be very hard to, to figure out that Eric is a Christian uh, with all the internet stuff that's out there. So yeah, you know, and there's a few of you in here that probably are right along with me. And if something goes down, we're pretty obvious, right? That's okay. We don't fear that. However, if I am in a situation, I want to prepare to be loyal to everyone else and not just be like, oh, and let me tell you the list of friends I have. I know a lot of people. <laughs> and so here's, and here's where they live. Here's my address book. So, Lord Jesus, prepare us to stand loyal and true. And then finally, preparing to shine light in the darkness. If you are brought into a dark situation, it's the biggest oops the enemy has ever made because you're a light bearer. And so, he brings you into that darkness and guess what? Light wins. Lives are changed. Many, many people that have suffered in prison have said that it's, it's a great mission field. Because you have a whole bunch of people that are in desperate need of hope. Including the guards. And so as a result, if you are ready to turn outward, because you're practicing that way now. There's a whole bunch of people that want you harmed right now in this world. They don't have any legal ability to harm you. And if they do harm you, there'll be, you know, there'll be some kind of criminal processing. But that protection legally may be removed someday. Start loving them now. As opposed to just when you know, that you don't have a choice but to do it. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't be like Richard Wormbratt in prison. This is our modeling. We do this because Jesus has set a pattern for us. It's a pattern of love. Father, I ask that you would build us to showcase your life and your love. Lord, we are frail. We are thin. We are weak in and of ourselves. But Lord Jesus, Make us dense and strong. Fortify us and empower us to live in these bodies as you would live in them. Lord, we have the Holy Spirit. We have not been left without a comforter, without a helper. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness. We've been given everything we need for a prison cell. We've been given everything we need for a cross. We've been given everything we need for pain. We have you. We celebrate that fact this morning. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training Learn more at ellersley.com Thanks for listening